Let's take our Bibles this morning and look in one of my favorite texts, Hosea chapter 14. The last uh, four messages I brought were out of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and they were somewhat difficult, maybe hard, but uh, necessary to think about the gospel integrity, the purity of the church. And uh, if you did not hear them, all of them are available on the website. the one last week did not record here for some reason, but I preached the same thing in Allentown and my son was able to extract it from there. So all four of those messages are available on the website as uh, most messages are each week. This text is a message of grace, of mercy, of forgiveness. It's a reminder that regardless of how darkly and deeply you may have fallen away from God, that there is a God who beckons you to return, who promises complete forgiveness and blessing and restoration if you will just come back to him. Hosea chapter 14, listen please as I begin in verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity. Accept what is good and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. And we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. God responds, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain, they shall blossom like the vine, their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress, from me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, Let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. I remind you that Hosea was an 8th century prophet, a contemporary of uh, Isaiah, who spoke primarily to the 10 tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel. And he spoke to them at the time of their deepest decline, their greatest apostasy. He spoke to them just before their defeat and their dispersion around the world by the Assyrian Empire in 722 BC. 
If you read the book of Hosea, it is a strong prophetic message of judgment against the sin of Israel. Hosea indicts the prophets. He indicts the priests, the people, for their abandonment of God, their idolatry, their immorality. It is a thundering message of judgment against the northern kingdom. And yet it ends with the most gentlest of pleas for the nation of Israel to come back to their God. If you know the story, if you've read the book of Hosea, then you understand that it begins with the story of Hosea's broken marriage and his broken heart. He marries a woman by the name of Gomer, who becomes a prostitute. And in her prostitution, appears to bear children. And eventually she is so abused and rejected and used by men that she ends up in the marketplace on a platform being sold as a slave. And God tells Hosea to go and purchase his wife to buy her back. This marriage, this broken marriage and broken heartedness of Hosea is sort of an extended metaphor of God's relationship with Israel, of Israel's betrayal and God's broken heart and of their judgment and of their loss because of their sin. Hosea was a prophet who God deemed needed to experience a broken heart in order to bring the message that he wanted Hosea to bring to his, his people. One commentator says this about the state of Israel and God's dealings with Israel at that time. He says, undoubtedly, the most blatant rejection of God was, was Israel's idolatry. It distorted their thinking and ultimately it replaced God with another. Gomer's adulterous affairs provided penetrating images of Israel's apostasy and revealed the hurt and the disaster associated with adultery. Hurt suffered by God and disaster suffered by the people. We find in our text the word apostasy. The, the older translations use the word backsliding. God will heal your backsliding. Backsliding is that, that term that's used to describe the, the spiritual unfaithfulness of those who claim to be the people of God. It was the perennial, the constant problem of Israel. It was also the problem of Judah. Jeremiah spoke to Judah and he said, your evil will chastise you. Your apostasy, your backsliding will repro reprove you. Ezekiel the prophet who spoke to those 
who were taken into exile uses the same language. He talks about their apostasy, but he promises them. He says, God will save you from all of your backslidings. And this is Hosea's message to Israel. God can heal your backsliding. Someone has suggested that there are ways to guarantee that apostasy or backsliding will take place in your life. If you want to see apostasy take place, he suggests these things. Neglect to reflect with gratitude on the cross of Jesus Christ. Put the cross out of your mind and that will put you on a road to apostasy. He says, abandon the practice of prayer and reading and studying the scriptures. Misuse uh, opportunities or avoid opportunities for Christian fellowship. Accommodate yourself to the moral and, and spiritual values of the age in which you live. Keep telling yourself, he says, that one day you will change. And try to forget that backsliding brings dishonor to God. There are ways to guarantee that you will slip away slowly from God. First, it will be quiet and unseen. It won't be the public things like church and worship and fellowship that are first, uh, the first signs. No, it'll be the inward signs, the abandonment of the heart that's reflecting of the gospel, the abandonment of the private practices of spiritual discipline, of prayer and the word of God. And when those are gone, then Christian fellowship will go and the church will eventually go. I try to imagine that day when the prophet Hosea goes to the marketplace where the slaves are being sold. And on that platform is this woman whose beauty and purity have been taken away. Perhaps dirty, smelly, worn, haggard by the abuse of men. And God says, Hosea, take her back. Listen to God's words to Hosea out of chapter 3. The Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. And so will I also be to you. We know from the Bible, such as the book of Exodus, that 30 pieces of silver was sort of the going price for a slave. 
he gives 15 pieces. And a homer and lethic of barley, which some would say perhaps was the equivalent to the other 15 pieces of silver that would be the normal price, or perhaps because her value, because of her abuse, her value was so diminished that she's nearly worth only about half the price of a slave and a little bit of food to go along with it. I find it interesting as I read chapter 3 that I can read Hosea's words to Gomer. He said to her, you must dwell with me for many days. You're not going to play the whore anymore. You're not going to belong to another man. You're going to be mine. And I will be the same to you. In so many words, he's simply saying, you're going to be mine alone. And I'm going to be yours alone from here on. It's what we could say is a renewal of the covenant of marriage which is what couples give themselves to when they come to marriage. I am yours and yours only until death do we part. I have every couple say that in a marriage ceremony. I am yours and yours only until death do we part. But what we don't have in our text is Gomer's words to her husband. I'm sure there were words, words of shame and words of guilt and words of sorrow and words of repentance. But we don't hear from scripture what did Gomer say to her husband, what do you say when you have lain with so many men who have, who have stolen your beauty and your purity? What do you say to someone who still says, I love you and I want you back? Perhaps one of the most difficult things in life is when you have failed somebody and failed them terribly. When you have betrayed them, when you have been disloyal, and especially in a marriage relationship, what do you say to them? What are the words that you say when you come back? When you've departed from God, when you've backslidden, when you've apostatized, when you've been idolatrous, what do you say to God? Well, our text is telling us that as Gomer took, or as Hosea took Gomer back, God was willing to take Israel back. And he gives them the words that you say when you come back to God. You don't have to think about, what do I say? Hosea says, if you're coming back to God... Here's what you say. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. How do I come back to God? And with what words do I come? 
Well, the first thing that Hosea indicates is you must acknowledge in coming back to God what the real problem is. Your iniquity has been your dis destruction. It's not your psychology. It's not your circumstances. It's not your background. It's not your upbringing. It's not your poverty. It's not your emotional distress. Your sin is what the problem is. Hosea says. That's the only thing that separates you from God, that causes apostasy from God. The real problem is never simply psychological or circumstantial, though they may be influential. The real problem is sin is what ruins my relationship with God, and sin is what ruins my life. And only God has the answer for that sin. Someone has said, and perhaps rightly so, that the three hardest words in the English language are, I have sinned. A husband can say, I'm sorry. And a wife can say, I'm sorry. But it's so difficult to say, I have sinned. And I don't just need your pity for my being sorry. I need your forgiveness for my sin against you. Sin is our downfall. I have sinned. I've been an idolater. I've been unfaithful. I've not been loyal to you. I've lived a lie. I have failed to live, God, by your moral standards. So the first thing is we acknowledge the real problem. And secondly, we speak honestly and we speak humbly. What do I say to God? Hosea says in verse 2, take with you words and return to the Lord and say to him, here's what you say, take away all iniquity. God, forgive me. This is a plea for forgiveness. Forgive me. Only you can deal with the real problem that's between us. If it's psychological, then maybe I need a doctor. I need a psychiatrist. If it's circumstantial, then, you know, maybe I need to change the circumstances of my life. But if it's sin, then only God has the power to take away iniquity. Literally to lift it up and take it away. Remove it completely. We remember the story in the book of Mark where the friends of the paralytic bring him to Jesus through the roof of the house. And Jesus says to him, you know, son, your sins are forgiven you. And the religious leaders are objecting because they know that only God has the power to forgive sins. And God does. 
Jesus has the power to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, take up your mat and go home. And he took up his mat and walked out in full view of him. And they were all amazed because this one who said, your sins are forgiven, proved that he was the Messiah, but the power of healing that day. Forgiveness, take away all iniquity. I want to think about that all iniquity for a moment. How deep and how dark, how great and repugnant was the sin of Israel. Take away all iniquity. If you go back to chapter 4 of the book of Hosea, at the beginning of the chapter, beginning in the second part of verse 1, it says this, There is no faithfulness or steadfast love or knowledge of God in the land. There's swearing and lying and murder and stealing and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. The first part, the second part of verse 1 of chapter 4 tells us what's wrong deep within the heart of those who turn their back on God. Verse 2 tells us the outward consequences of that, the swearing, the lying, the murder, the stealing. But in verse 1, notice those three indictments. There is no faithfulness. And if you look at the history of Israel, there was this battle in the hearts of Israel between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of the world. They would flirt with the Egyptians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the nations around them. They would flirt with them and, and, and be drawn, be enticed by them. And then they'd come back to God and they would go back again. There is no faithfulness to the God who is always faithful. The God who brought them out of Egypt and took them through the wilderness, who gave them the promised land, who defeated their enemies. There's no faithfulness to the one who is always faithful. What an indictment. They lived with a wandering heart. Just as Gomer, Hosea's wife, was continually attracted to other men and drawn away by other men, Israel was continually seduced by the nations of the world. It's what James addresses in the New Testament. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself the enemy of God. Or you do, do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? 
That if you're a child of God, you've got the God of faithfulness, the God of love, who is living inside of you, who wants you to love him back, who wants you to be faithful. He yearns for your faithfulness. There's no faithfulness, he says, and there's no loyalty. There's no steadfast love. That word that is so often used to describe the God that we worship. He's a God of mercy, a God of steadfast love, of covenant faithfulness. This God who is always there. It's that God who is described over and over again in Psalm 107 where we have this constant refrain at least eight times. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. This is our God, always loving. Even when he sees us in our, at our worst even though we are on that slave block of sin, beaten down, our beauty, our purity gone, God still loves his own. But with God's people, there's no loyalty. There's no faithful love. They've received God's mercy, but they've received God's mercy in vain. And then he says, there is no knowledge of God. What an indictment. You say you're a Christian. Yeah. I meet many Christians who do not know Jesus. They know a lot about Christianity. They do not know God. And this was the indictment of Israel. They knew Moses, they knew the law, they knew the ritual. They even maintained much of it, but they did not know God. And often this Hebrew word is used to describe the, the intimate relationship of a husband and wife where a man goes in and he knows his wife. He has a sexual encounter, an intimate encounter with his wife. He knows her intimately. But you who claim to be God's people, you have no intimate, personal, relational knowledge of God. There's no faithfulness, no loyalty, no knowledge of God. And if this is what the heart is like, then there's no surprise that verse 2 follows. There's swearing and lying and murder and stealing and committing adultery and they break all bonds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. When you read through the book of Isaiah, the indictment after indictment, the exposure of the sin of Israel, you might conclude that you could not get much worse then Israel became. And yet, Isaiah, Hosea says, take words and say to God, take away all that iniquity. Ru 
root that unfaithfulness out of my heart and root that disloyalty out of my heart and give me an intimate, personal, relational knowledge of God and then the rest of the stuff will leave. We also see what I call a, a plea for a gracious welcome. Go to God and say, accept what is good. Well, what is good? What, what is there that you can give to God? Perhaps that he doesn't have already. What, what, what is it that you can give to God? The bull, he says, the, the, the vows of your lips, literally the Hebrew word for vows there is the calves of our lips. You know, that young animal that you might offer in ancient Israel to as a sacrifice to God. What does God want for you, from you? He wants the sacrifice of praise. He doesn't simply want the blood of goats and bulls which can never take away sin, which are only symbols of realities. He wants from you words of praise, words of confession, words of acknowledgement. Accept what is good, we will pay with bulls, the vows, the calves of our lips. The sacrificial offering of praise as the writer of Hebrews talks about it. But as we see the sequence here, you cannot offer the sacrifice of praise unless there has first been the cleansing from sin. Take away iniquity, then accept the offering of our lips. Isaiah understood this when he saw the holiness of God. Woe to me, he cried out, I am a ruined man, a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. There hasn't been coming from my mouth the praise for which God is due. And the angel takes the tongues, the hot coals from the altar, and touches his lips and cleanses him so that he can praise and speak for the living God. What do we say when we offer the sacrifice of our lips? We say Assyria cannot save us. We will not rely on evil foreign powers to deliver us from our dilemma in life. We will not betray our God by relying on evil powers. We will not mount on war horses. We will not trust the natural strengths and powers of this world to deliver us from the problems we have. We're not going to run to our money, to the bank, to our friends. We're going to trust God. And we will never again say, 
to our gods. This is the work of our hands. We have created our gods. We have created what will sustain us and take us through in life. That's the way the world is. The world believes that they have an answer for everything. We can solve every problem and then we can say, these gods are the works of our hands. We have made our deliverers. But there's one thing that the world, one problem, one disease that the world can never solve, and that is sin. Assyria will not save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say to our gods, this is the work of our hands. For in you, and I love this phrase, the orphans, the fatherless find mercy, find compassion. I'm but a child, a fatherless child apart from you. I'm an orphan. I have no one to care for me. I cannot make my way in life. I have no one who loves me and cares for me except for you. And I trust you. In you, the orphan finds mercy. There is no greater affront to the living God than disloyalty and unfaithfulness. And there is no greater acclamation to God than one of complete dependence upon him. I trust you. I believe you. As Hosea said to Gomer, you will be mine alone and I will be yours alone. God says to you, I want you to be mine alone because I am yours. And he wants you to respond, yes, Lord, I want to be yours alone because your love never fails. When you repent and are forgiven, you offer God the sacrifice of praise, you can have faith in God's response. You can have every confidence of what God can do for a broken life. How he can take that Gomer who is so defaced, so broken, so worn and used, and bring beauty and life back again. You can have faith in God's response. God says, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. My anger's turned away. I will be like the dew to Israel. God is the only doctor 
that can heal the disease of apostasy. And he does that by cleansing you through the blood of Jesus Christ. And when you come back to him ashamed and unworthy, God says, I will love you freely. I will love you, not because you're lovable. I will love you, not because I'm attracted to you. I will love you freely out of my own nature, out of my own magnanimous capacity to love. I will love you out of my love. I imagine Hosea saying that to Gomer. You're going to be mine and I will be yours alone. That's mercy. That's grace. And God says, I do that to you, but in an even greater way. And I will be as the dew. In a land that has minimal rainfall, the dew of Israel is essential for life in that nation and providing water for the crops. God will be like the dew, providing all of the necessary sustenance for spiritual life, for renewal. I will be like the dew. And if God is like the dew to you, if God is providing everything that's necessary to sustain and create beauty in life, then you can be sure of the results of God's renewed favor. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoot shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and its fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Just metaphor after metaphor of multiplication. The lily is known for its rapid multiplication, often producing as many as 50 bulbs from one root. Multiplication, stability, the roots of those strong cedars of Lebanon going down deeply. Growth, the deeper the roots went, the more the branches spread, covering themselves with splendid green foliage. Beauty, beauty like the olive tree, the evergreen olive tree, the tree that resists fire and drought and the tree that can, can produce fruit, fruit sometimes for a thousand years or more, an olive tree. A tree that if you cut it down, it re regrows again. Even from a sprig of an olive tree, you can grow an olive tree. And many would say that the fragrant oil that, that, that uh, olive tree emits, that aroma aids to its beauty. The beauty of the olive tree. Your fragrance like Lebanon, 
Imagine those massive cedar forests of Lebanon, walking through that aroma of the evergreen, of, of, of the cedar. What, what refreshment, what, what delight. And the source of all of this delight is God himself. I will be like the dew that produces this multiplication and stability and growth and beauty and delight. Oh, Ephraim, God cries out, what have I to do with idols? And what do you have to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. Idols can't do that. I'm the God who said, call unto me and I will answer and show you great and mighty things which you know not. I'm the God who hears. Idols don't hear. And I'm the God who looks after you. I'm like an evergreen cypress. A place of shelter spreading its branches. From me comes your fruit. Come to me. You want life? That you are standing on that slave block of sin with a life that's destroyed and decayed. And God says, Come to me. Bring words. Ask me to take away all inequity. I'll do that. Ask me to accept the confession and praise of your lips. I will do that. And if you will do that, then I'll be like the dew is to Israel. I will bring such restoration and renewal to your life. I will take that decrepit, ugly, dirty, defiled Gomer and make her beautiful once again. So what should we do? Well, he ends sort of with an invitation. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right and the upright walk in them but transgressors stumble in them earlier when Q read Isaiah 55 what a wonderful text where again it's an invitation to come without money just come it's already paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ she ended with these words, and I end with them this morning. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion upon him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon. Just come. As we used to sing, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come.
Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that because of Jesus Christ, who died the death that we deserve, and rose again, conquering sin and death and Satan to give us a life that we don't deserve. Because of him, it doesn't matter how darkly or deeply we have fallen, how far away we have run, how broken and ruined our lives may be if we will simply repent and come and ask you to forgive us and to receive our confession, our praise. God, may some, even today, be restored to you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.